Hello and welcome to Misty 101 podcast. Vigilante group are now patrolling London's streets. Racial tensions in the UK are unlikely to be eased by the sight of the Forever Family Force patrolling the streets of the capital in military formation. What do we know about this sinister, confrontational group? One of the most jarring images as the Black Lives Matter movement swept the UK last summer was that of Forever Family. To the general public, the group appeared from nowhere. They came to prominence on African Emancipation Day August 1, as they marched in military-style uniforms in formation through Brixton, South London. Most wore stab vests, many faces were covered by balaclavas, and their presence was aggressive and uncompromising. Since then, the group have remained out of the headlines, but in the past few months they've returned. Videos show gatherings of members standing in formation with raised fists, while being followed by others riding motorbikes. And the latest edition of their newsletter states they have journalists and mediated a controversial national initiative, the People's Patrol. It describes how the patrol aligned with a surge in media repo journalists and medias of attempted child abductions in London. At the time, the Metropolitan Police said this was internet speculation and that there was no reason to believe abductions are a growing problem. However, the Forever Family Force seemingly patrolled the streets, interacting with children without parental consent, with their newsletter stating, FF4 spent time overseeing children making their way to school alone in the morning and spoke to parents and carers about key issues affecting their neighborhoods. It also admitted they gathered intelligence on areas, and there were pictures of children in school uniform as Forever Family, handed out over 300 Nike, Puma and New Balance backpacks and SPO journalists and media's bags. Alongside this, the group released a social media post, Train with us, patrol with us, and join the family. Member Jay Cast informed people on Instagram and Twitter to contact him for training camp dates, times and locations. It's unclear what this training involves. Another FF document states they expressed to young people the benefit of having basic self-defense and first aid skills. This suggests that the group expects young people to encounter violence. In an attempt to clarify their objectives, Forever Family were repeatedly invited to speak to journalists and media but refused, with an unnamed member replying, We are not currently par journalists and media king in interviews. I cannot go into reasons why. This directly contradicted their newsletter which states, Forever Family is always happy to engage with journalists and media representatives who repo journalists and media factually and without prejudice. It's impossible to know how many members they have, but what we do repo journalists and media is that they have been registered as a legal company, Forever Family Limited, with the British tax authorities. The sole director is Kari McKenzie and the secretary is Rochelle Emanuel. McKenzie is better known as Respect Rebellion and appears to be Forever Family's leader. 
he can be seen in videos shouting, touch one, as others chant back in unison, touch all. Last month, Mackenzie delivered a speech in Birmingham, outside the family home of D. John Reed, a 14-year-old who was stabbed to death. He said, this is a warning, if any more of our little brothers, even a hair on their head is touched, I'm telling you, you're going to see more than 100 bikes, more than 1,000 people as we're not having our little brothers brutalized like this. After warning against violence within the black community, he added, to have racist people be murdering our brothers on these roads, we're not going to have it, fact, and I'll die on that. And there's a 1,000 man in Brum that will die on that, a 1,000 man in London, a 1,000 man in Manchester and a 1,000 man in Nottingham, dot you better know what time it is. The tone of Mackenzie's speech is in keeping with Forever Family's confrontational image. What many people will wonder is why a city like London needs a group of angry and aggressive vigilantes, who don't seem to want to explain their actions to the media, patrolling the streets. Forever Family may have good intentions to act on behalf of a community, but they have no legal right to do so. Clearly the rise of BLM highlighted massive divisions, but Forever Family seems to be treating the problems as binary, us against the rest of the world. What appears to be clear from what little we do know about Forever Family is that they are a wholly uncompromising outfit. But the questions remain, if they wish to help their community, then why are they dressed like a militia? Why the secrecy about whom they are? And why won't they talk openly to the media if they have nothing to hide? All their messaging suggests they are adamant about knowing the best way forward in London and other par journalists and medias of the UK, with the group now having a presence in Scotland. But this combative attitude will likely bring problems. If Forever Family continues their patrols, it's surely only a matter of time before a rival organization forms to oppose them. Sewage surveillance reveals widespread increase of coronavirus in England last month. Sewage monitoring has shown there was a widespread increase in the concentration of COVID-19 in England throughout June. Samples of wastewater taken from around 270 sewage treatment works were tested for fragments of coronavirus. People shed fragments of the virus through daily activities such as going to the loo or blowing their nose, which then enter the sewer system through sinks, drains and toilets. The increase in the concentration of COVID in wastewater was indicative of increasing prevalence, according to a report by the Environmental Monitoring for Health Protection EMHP, Wastewater Surveillance Program. The increase was not consistent across all monitoring sites, with some areas showing an overall decrease. Generally, the more people with COVID-19 in the community the more viral RNA ribonucleic acid, will be shed into wastewater, the report says. Therefore, the concentration in wastewater is indicative of the prevalence of COVID-19 in the community. The program helps identify where the virus is circulating in England and can detect spikes in prevalence and the presence of variants.
It can also detect the virus even if people don't have symptoms and haven't been tested. Sewage monitoring has shown there was a widespread increase in the concentration of COVID-19 in England throughout June. Samples of wastewater taken from around 270 sewage treatment works were tested for fragments of coronavirus. People shed fragments of the virus through daily activities such as going to the loo or blowing their nose, which then enter the sewer system through sinks, drains and toilets. The increase in the concentration of COVID in wastewater was indicative of increasing prevalence, according to a report by the Environmental Monitoring for Health Protection Wastewater Surveillance Program. The increase was not consistent across all monitoring sites, with some areas showing an overall decrease. Generally, the more people with COVID-19 in the community the more viral RNA ribonucleic acid, will be shed into wastewater, the report says. Therefore, the concentration in wastewater is indicative of the prevalence of COVID-19 in the community. The program helps identify where the virus is circulating in England and can detect spikes in prevalence and the presence of variants. It can also detect the virus even if people don't have symptoms and haven't been tested. Genomic sequencing of wastewater samples can provide an indication of where VOCs variants of concern and VUIs variants under investigation may be present across England, the report said. It added, this is done through genomic sequencing of wastewater samples, to provide an indication of where VOCs and VUIs may be present across England. Insights from wastewater monitoring are shared with local and national decision makers, to help inform the action that they can take to stop further transmission. Taken with other testing programs, the program says it can help protect against the threat of new variants. Wastewater monitoring complements other testing programs and public health actions to help protect against the threat of new variants, as the country closely follows the roadmap out of national restrictions, the report says. It comes as the UK recorded 27,734 new coronavirus cases and 91 more deaths on Wednesday, the first rise in cases after seven consecutive days of falling numbers. Despite the rise in cases, the seven-day average was 36.1% down from the previous week. Meanwhile, the latest Office for National Statistics survey has suggested people who catch coronavirus a second time have a lower viral load than the first time, indicating they will have milder symptoms. The survey also suggested one in four young adults who test positive for COVID are no longer following the rules for self-isolating. How brands will destroy own reputation if the race to beat Wokist was an Olympic sport, big brands and global media would be leading the field with the destruction of their own reputations to support the downfall of women's sport in the name of social justice. 
A rare breed of radical woke one-upmanship has emerged among big brands and global media who seem hell-bent on destroying their own reputations and relationships with loyal customers to posture as the most politically correct. Toiletries giant Dove's lack of social media tact sparked fury among female customers when celebrating born male athlete Laurel Hubbard's inclusion at Tokyo 2020 and promoting further repeats of women's sport being obliterated in favor of a physically stronger athlete with an unfair advantage. History in the making. Congrats to Laurel. Here's to more trans representation in sports. The clueless cosmetics company wrote in response to a tweet from the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, which had tweeted that trans people belong in sport. What a way to not know your audience. Immediately the ire and irritation of womanhood all over the web was apparent and dozens took objection to the brand formally recognized as a sanctum of women-friendly mission statements actively advocating for more 43-year-old athletes eight years after transition stripping an Olympic spot from a born woman. No more dove for me. Openly female woman and conservative MP Jackie Doyle Price wrote, while former MEP counterpart Belinda De Lucy concurred with the boycott, Dove, celebrating the end of women's sports, will be choosing another more female-friendly brand for now on. And it didn't stop there. The disgust at Dove's direct disrespect towards female competitors triggered a torrent of dissent with Twitter users left and right informing, your virtue signaling just lost you a customer. And just like that, Dove achieved the dubious honor of being the only personal care company to make their clients feel dirtier after using their cosmetic products by cozying up to perennial political correctness crusaders and woke warriors. Mind you, are we surprised Dove is bending over backwards to satisfy the baying woke brigade who will gladly feast on the blood of their sacrificed standing among level-headed women? This is a company which was thrice forced to grovel before the million gender mob for a series of adverts deemed hypocritical, racist and sexualizing women largely by a throng of SJWs. In 2007 the company was forced to bow before the bitch at everything brigade when it unwittingly placed a woman of color in the before section and a white woman in the after section in an advertisement for its product range to combat cracked skin. Unfortunate when contorted out of context, but clearly not racist. In 2004, Dove's campaign for real beauty was panned as a two-faced vanity project for sexualizing women in adverts for men's spray links, owned by Dove parent company Unilever, while promoting the risible rhetoric of body positivity. That's right, because in the spurious world of social justice warriors, it's apparently unacceptable to celebrate sexiness unless a model's bra and bottoms are separated by a bountiful beer belly.
It's a world where eternally offended oiks believe allowing a man who took an 11-year hiatus from weightlifting and only returned to after transitioning to a female aged 35 to dash the dreams of a born woman by taking her Olympic spot constitutes fighting for equal rights. However, Dove's chances of winning the woke relay weren't hampered by shooting themselves in the foot when they alienating the majority of their clientele, although they faced fierce competition from the BBC. The overall pace setters in the radical Wokeness race turned out to be BBC Sport, which issued an implausibly malicious manifesto on the Hubbard brouhaha by threatening to silence hate, which it characterized as pretty much any dissenters who disagreed with Hubbard's Olympic inclusion. What better way to inspire debate than suffocating the entire rebuttal, right? In a statement, Britain's state broadcaster threatened to block any accounts deemed to have committed wrong think on the Hubbard issue under the guise of defending gender equality. We will block people bringing hate to our comments sections, we will report the most serious cases to the relevant authorities, we will work to make our accounts kind and respectful places, the Beeb wrote. We will keep growing our coverage of all sports, and keep covering issues and discussions around equality in sport. The BBC bizarrely advertised its simple-minded, social justice safe space as a respectful place for discussion, constructive criticism, debate and opinion, despite eliminating any discussion that doesn't agree. Perhaps the most apparent absurdity is this stance was published in response to an article that received myriad complaints for, amongst other things, its normalized and profligate use of completely made-up labels such as cis men and cis women and championing women athletes being penalized by a trans female. It seems influential media companies and beauty products manufacturers are prepared to wreck their reputations among level-headed, long-time customers in the battle for a place on the podium of political correctness. And as long as they continue to ignore that the race to the bottom that is their quest to become the most woke are actually good intentions paving the road to hell for women's sport, their female customers will continue to be marginalized and mocked by moves to appease a minority of the permanently aggrieved. Now back to our story. The boy noted that there was a sense of fear in the air, even though no one said anything. Once again he was experiencing the language without words, the universal language. The Englishman asked if they were in danger. Once you get into the desert, there's no going back, said the camel driver. And when you can't go back, you have to worry only about the best way of moving forward. The rest is up to Allah, including the danger and he concluded by saying the mysterious word, Maktoub. You should pay more attention to the caravan, the boy said to the Englishman after the camel driver had left. We make a lot of detours, but we're always heading for the same destination. And you ought to read more about the world, answered the Englishman. 
Books are like caravans in that respect. The immense collection of people and animals began to travel faster. The days had always been silent, but now even the nights, when the travellers were accustomed to talking around the fires, had also become quiet. And one day the leader of the caravan made the decision that the fires should no longer be lighted so as not to attract attention to the caravan. The travellers adopted the practice of arranging the animals in a circle at night, sleeping together in the centre as protection against the nocturnal cold, and the leader posted armed sentinels at the fringes of the group. The Englishman was unable to sleep one night. He called to the boy and they took a walk along the dunes surrounding the encampment. There was a full moon, and the boy told the Englishman the story of his life. The Englishman was fascinated with the part about the progress achieved at the crystal shop after the boy began working there. That's the principle that governs all things, he said. In alchemy, it's called the soul of the world. When you want something with all your heart, that's when you are closest to the soul of the world. It's always a positive force. He also said that this was not just a human gift, that everything on the face of the earth had a soul, whether mineral, vegetable or animal, or even just a simple thought. Everything on earth is being continuously transformed because the earth is alive and it has a soul. We are part of that soul, so we rarely recognize that it is working for us. But in the crystal shop, you probably realize that even the glasses were collaborating in your success. The boy thought about that for a while as he looked at the moon and the bleached sands. I have watched the caravan as it crossed the desert, he said. The caravan and the desert speak the same language, and it's for that reason that the desert allows the crossing. It's going to test the caravan's every step to see if it's in time, and if it is, we will make it to the oasis. The Englishman said, I'd better pay more attention to the caravan, and I'd better read your books, said the boy. They were strange books. They spoke about mercury, salt, dragons and kings, and he didn't understand any of it. But there was one idea that seemed to repeat itself throughout all the books. All things are the manifestation of one thing only. In one of the books he learned that the most important text in the literature of alchemy contained only a few lines and had been inscribed on the surface of an emerald. It's the emerald tablet, said the Englishman, proud that he might teach something to the boy. Well, then, why do we need all these books? the boy asked. So that we can understand those few lines, the Englishman answered, without appearing really to believe what he had said. The book that most interested the boy told the stories of the famous alchemists. They were men who had dedicated their entire lives to the purification of metals in their laboratories. They believed that if a metal were heated for many years, it would free itself of all its individual properties and what was left would be the soul of the world. This soul of the world allowed them to understand anything on the face of the earth, because it was the language with which all things communicated. They called that discovery the master work. It was part liquid and part solid. Can't you just observe men and omens in order to understand the language? The boy asked. You have a mania for simplifying everything answered the Englishman, irritated. Alchemy is a serious discipline. Every step has to be followed exactly as it was followed by the masters. The boy learned that the liquid part of the masterwork was called the elixir of life, 
and that it cured all illnesses. It also kept the alchemist from growing old. And the solid part was called the Philosopher's Stone. It's not easy to find the Philosopher's Stone, said the Englishman. The alchemist spent years in the laboratories observing the fire that purified the metals. They spent so much time close to the fire that gradually they gave up the vanities of the world. They discovered that the purification of the metals had led to a purification of themselves. The boy thought about the crystal merchant. He had said that it was a good thing for the boy to clean the crystal pieces so that he could free himself from negative thought. The boy was becoming more and more convinced that alchemy could be learned in one's daily life. Also, said the Englishman, the philosopher's stone has a fascinating property. A small sliver of the stone can transform large quantities of metal into gold. Having heard that, the boy became even more interested in alchemy. He thought that with some patience, he'd be able to transform everything into gold. He read the lives of the various people who had succeeded in doing so, Helvetius, Elias, Fulcanelli, and Geber. They were fascinating stories. Each of them lived out his destiny to the end. They traveled, spoke with wise men, performed miracles for the incredulous, and owned the Philosopher's Stone and the Elixir of Life. But when the boy wanted to learn how to achieve the master work, he became completely lost. There were just drawings, coded instructions, and obscure texts. Why do they make things so complicated? He asked the Englishman one night. The boy had noticed that the Englishman was irritable and missed his books. So that those who have the responsibility for understanding can understand, he said. Imagine if everyone went around transforming lead into gold, gold would lose its value. It's only those who are persistent and willing to study things deeply who achieve the master work. That's why I'm here in the middle of the desert. I'm seeking a true alchemist who will help me to decipher the codes. The Englishman said that for the past few days he had been paying attention to how the caravan operated, but that he hadn't learnt anything new. The only thing he had noticed was that talk of war was becoming more and more frequent. One day the boy returned the books to the Englishman. Did you learn anything? The Englishman asked, eager to hear what it might be. He needed someone to talk to so as to avoid thinking about the possibility of war. I learned that the world has a soul and that whoever understands that soul can also understand the language of things. I learned that many alchemists realized their destinies and wound up discovering the soul of the world, the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life. But above all, I learned that these things are all so simple that they could be written on the surface of an emerald. The Englishman was disappointed. The years of research, the magic symbols, the strange words and the laboratory equipment, none of this had made an impression on the boy. His soul must be too primitive to understand those things, the Englishman thought. He took back his books and packed them away again in their bags. Go back to watching the caravan, he said. That didn't teach me anything either. The boy went back to contemplating the silence of the desert and the sand raised by the animals. Everyone has his or her own way of learning things, he said to himself. His way isn't the same as mine, nor mine as his. But we're both in search of our destinies, and I respect him for that. The caravan began to travel day and night. 
The hooded Bedouins reappeared more and more frequently, and the camel driver, who had become a good friend of the boys, explained that the war between the tribes had already begun. The caravan would be very lucky to reach the oasis. The animals were exhausted, and the men talked among themselves less and less. The silence was the worst aspect of the night, when the mere groan of a camel, which before had been nothing but the groan of a camel, now frightened everyone because it might signal a raid. The camel driver, though, seemed not to be very concerned with the threat of war. I'm alive, he said to the boy as they ate a bunch of dates one night with no fires and no moon. When I'm eating, that's all I think about. If I'm on the march, I just concentrate on marching. If I have to fight, it will be just as good a day to die as any other. Because I don't live in either my past or my future. I'm interested only in the present. If you can concentrate always on the present, you'll be a happy man. You'll see that there is life in the desert, that there are stars in the heavens, and that tribesmen fight because they are a part of the human race. Life will be a party for you, a grand festival, because life is the moment we're living right now. Two nights later, as he was getting ready to bed down, the boy looked for the star they followed every night. He thought that the horizon was a bit lower than it had been, because he seemed to see stars on the desert itself. It's the oasis, said the camel driver. Why don't we go there right now? the boy asked. Because we have to sleep. The boy awoke as the sun rose. There in front of him, where the small stars had been the night before, was an endless row of date palms stretching across the entire desert. We've done it, said the Englishman, who had also awakened early. But the boy was quiet. He was at home with the silence of the desert, and he was content just to look at the trees. He still had a long way to go to reach the pyramids, and someday this morning would be just a memory. But this was the present moment, the one the camel driver had mentioned, and he wanted to live it as he did the lessons of his past and his dreams of the future. The times rush past and so do the caravans, thought the alchemist, as he watched the hundreds of people and animals arriving at the oasis. He always enjoyed seeing the happiness that the travellers experienced when after weeks of yellow sand and blue sky they first saw the green of the date palms. Maybe God created the desert so that man could appreciate the date trees, he thought. He decided to concentrate on more practical matters. He knew that in the caravan there was a man to whom he was to teach some of his secrets. The omens had told him so. He didn't know the man yet but his practiced eye would recognize him when he appeared. He hoped that it would be someone as capable as his previous apprentice. The boy couldn't believe what he was seeing. The oasis, rather than being just a well surrounded by a few palm trees, as he had seen once in a geography book, was much larger than many towns back in Spain. There were 300 wells, 50,000 date trees, and innumerable colored tents spread among them. Looks like the Thousand and One Nights, said the Englishman, impatient to meet with the alchemist. They were surrounded by children, curious to look at the animals and people that were arriving. 
The men of the oasis wanted to know if they had seen any fighting, and the women competed with one another for access to the cloth and precious stones brought by the merchants. The silence of the desert was a distant dream. The travellers in the caravan were talking incessantly, laughing and shouting as if they had emerged from the spiritual world and found themselves once again in the world of people. They were relieved and happy. They had been taking careful precautions in the desert, but the camel driver explained to the boy that oases were always considered to be neutral territories, because the majority of the inhabitants were women and children. There were oases throughout the desert, but the tribesmen fought in the desert, leaving the oases as places of refuge. With some difficulty, the leader of the caravan brought all his people together and gave them his instructions. The group was to remain there at the oasis until the conflict between the tribes was over. Since they were visitors, they would have to share living space with those who lived there and would be given the best accommodations. That was the law of hospitality. Then he asked that everyone, including his own sentinels, hand over their arms to the men appointed by the tribal chieftains. Those are the rules of war, the leader explained. The oases may not shelter armies or troops. That first day, everyone slept from exhaustion, including the Englishman. The boy was assigned a place far from his friend in a tent with five other young men of about his age. They were people of the desert and clamoured to hear his stories about the great cities. The next day, the Englishman came into the tent. I've been looking for you all morning, he said as he led the boy outside. I need you to help me find out where the alchemist lives. First, they tried to find him on their own. An alchemist would probably live in a manner that was different from that of the rest of the people at the oasis, and it was likely that in his tent an oven was continuously burning. They searched everywhere, and found that the oasis was much larger than they could have imagined. There were hundreds of tents. We've wasted almost the entire day, said the Englishman, sitting down with the boy near one of the wells. Maybe we'd better ask someone, the boy suggested. The Englishman didn't want to tell others about his reason for being at the oasis, and couldn't make up his mind. But finally he agreed that the boy, who spoke better Arabic than he, should do so. The boy approached a woman who had come to the well to fill a goatskin with water. Good afternoon, ma'am. I'm trying to find out where the alchemist lives here at the oasis. The woman said she had never heard of such a person, and hurried away. But before she fled, she advised the boy that he had better not try to converse with women who were dressed in black because they were married women. He should respect tradition. The Englishman was disappointed. It seemed he had made the long journey for nothing. The boy was also saddened. His friend was in pursuit of his destiny. And when someone was in such pursuit, the entire universe made an effort to help him succeed. That's what the old king had said. He couldn't have been wrong. I had never heard of alchemists before, the boy said. Maybe no one here has either. The Englishman's eyes lit up. That's it. Maybe no one here knows what an alchemist is. Find out who it is who cures the people's illnesses. After a while, a young woman approached who was not dressed in black. She had a vessel on her shoulder, and her head was covered by a veil, but her face was uncovered. The boy approached her to ask about the alchemist. At that moment, it seemed to him that time stood still, and the soul of the world surged within him. When he looked into her dark eyes and saw that her lips were poised between a laugh and silence, 
He learned the most important part of the language that all the world spoke, the language that everyone on earth was capable of understanding in their heart. It was love, something older than humanity, more ancient than the desert, something that exerted the same force whenever two pairs of eyes met, as had theirs here at the well. She smiled, and that was certainly an omen, the omen he had been awaiting without even knowing he was, for all his life. What the boy felt at that moment was that he was in the presence of the only woman in his life, and that with no need for words she recognized the same thing. He was more certain of it than anything in the world. He had been told by his parents and grandparents that he must fall in love and really know a person before becoming committed. But maybe people who felt that way had never learned the universal language, because when you know that language, it's easy to understand that someone in the world awaits you, whether it's in the middle of the desert or in some great city. And when two such people encounter each other, and their eyes meet, the past and the future become unimportant. There is only that moment, and the incredible certainty that everything under the sun has been written by one hand only. Maktoub, thought the boy. The Englishman shook the boy. Come on, ask her. The boy stepped closer to the girl, and when she smiled, he did the same. We are asking for your support. You can make your donations on our website www.misty101.com on podcast page. We hope that you have enjoyed the show. We thank you for being with us and your support. Goodbye till next time.